Amen. Thank you, Jan. Life is hard. God is good. I think we can all agree with that. Thank you, Brother Josh, for filling in for Brother Scott this morning. Brother Scott and Brother Bobby and about 10 other members of our church at our conference called CrossCon in Louisville, Kentucky this morning. You'll be in prayer for them as they make their way back this week and pray that they have a uh, eventful time there. God speak to their hearts. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter number 6 and verse number 1. Unfortunately, there are very few of us who have not experienced some kind of church conflict. Some of you have felt compelled to leave a church because of ongoing conflict. Others are reluctant to get connected with the church because of bad experiences of the past. And others still have the battle scars from your time in the trenches of church battles. The truth is there are no perfect churches just as there are no perfect families. Every family, church or otherwise, has a few oddballs. Every family has people who are hard to deal with. It has been well said, and I think it worth repeating, to dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, ah, that's another story. Every family has difficult times, but the thing that makes us families is that we still love each other and continue on. At no other time in church history has the church of Jesus Christ been characterized by the phenomenal growth, the tremendous power and miracles and unstoppable boldness which is experienced in the first few months of its existence. The story of the book of Acts reveals how rapidly the church was growing. On the day of Pentecost, we're told that those that gladly received and believed 3,000 were added. And then in chapter 2 and verse 47, it says, And believers were continually being added daily. Even persecution couldn't stop the church because chapter 4 and verse 4 reveals that 5,000 men are added This would probably indicate a congregation of at least 20,000 by this point. Later, we're told that multitudes of men and women were continuing to be added until finally we're told in chapter 6 and verse 1 that the disciples are multiplied. The early church was an exciting church, but it was not a perfect church. We have already seen the problem of hypocrisy with Ananias and Sapphira. Now Luke reveals another problem that if left unattended could have split the church. A perception of unfairness arose and became the cause of the first disagreement in the church. It is an attempt on the part of our enemy to divide the church by envy and misunderstanding. And I want us to see four things this morning that our text 
reveals to us about solving problems within the church. First of all, handling problems demands discernment. Verse number one says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. In Jewish society, widows were particularly needy and particularly dependent. And both the Old Testament and the New Testament singled them out along with orphans as those most in need of charitable help. This conflict within the Christian community came about as a result of several factors. First of all, the conflict occurred because Satan was behind the scenes trying to stir up division within the church, something that could divide and stop the church. Secondly, this conflict was a result of some natural divisions within the church. At Pentecost, thousands of Aramaic-speaking Jews, these were those who were born in Palestine, speaking Aramaic, which is a dialect of Hebrew, plus hundreds of Greek-speaking Jews, those who were born outside of Palestine, and these are known as Hellenists. They all became one in Christ. However, conversion, as wonderful as it is, does not erase all of the prejudices that one may have. The Greek-speaking widows soon felt as if they were being shortchanged in the daily division of food. The third thing that we see is that the conflict happened because, you know, it's really easy to fall through the cracks of a growing church even when that church is spirit-filled and really love each other. The problem was probably not deliberate. The success of the church was actually the source of the problem in the church. The church was experiencing growing pains, and this was making it difficult for the apostles to minister to everybody. As any church gets larger, things cannot be handled as spontaneously or as informally as they were in the past. When a church is small, many of the jobs can be handled with little or no structure. Church growth, consequently, requires constant evaluation and change in the way that things are done. And fourth, the complaint concerned the welfare of the widows. In this case, there seems to be a real problem, but that's not always the way it is when complaining begins. We're not told about whether those with the complaint went directly to the apostles or whether they discussed the <clears throat> problem among themselves and the apostles finally heard about it through the grapevine. What we do know is that the word in verse 1 translated complaint is a very unpleasant word. It is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint for the murmuring that the Jews did against Moses in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 16. Regardless of the cause, murmuring is always wrong. 
It is possible when these Greek-speaking Christians began to complain that they did not complain to those in authority, those with responsibility, but simply complained among themselves until the apostles overheard it. So what constitutes murmuring? When you complain to other people who are perhaps involved, but who are not in a position to do anything about it, that's murmuring. I wonder how many churches have been destroyed by a spirit of murmuring. God can be working in miraculously, miraculous ways. Souls can be being saved. And then someone gets it into their head that they're not doing, being duly appreciated. A spirit of complaining develops as someone goes around the church complaining to anyone who will listen. Little unkind things are said, reflections on others, and suddenly the people begin to wonder why the work of God has so little evident power and why people are not being saved. Perhaps it's because a root of bitterness has sprung up. When believers are unhappy and they begin to murmur, the first place that we should begin to look for the problem is in our own hearts. Ken Taylor, in his book, The Romans for the Family Hour, relates the following story. He says, one day a family traveling down the highway between Johnstown and J Jamestown stopped at Farmer Jones's place for a drink of water, which he gladly gave them. Where are you headed, he asked them. Well, we're moving from Johnstown to Jamestown to live, they told him. Can you tell us what kind of people there are living there? What are the people like? Well, he asked, what kind of people did you find where you lived before? Oh, they were the very worst kind, they said. They were gossipy and unkind and indifferent, and we were so glad to move. Well, said Farmer Jones, I'm afraid that, that you'll find the same in Jamestown. The next day, another car stopped, and... The same conversation took place, and these people were moving to Jamestown as well. They again asked, what kind of neighbors will we find there? He said, Farmer Jones said, well, what kind of neighbors did you have where you lived before? He said, oh, they were the best. They were so kind and considered that it almost broke our hearts to have to leave. Well, he said, you're going to find exactly the same kind again, and there's a lot of truth in that. Handling problems demands discernment. Handling problems requires decisiveness. In verses 2 and 3, Then the twelve <clears throat> summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, come out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. What procedure would the apostles use to deal with the problem? There are several possible ways they could have dealt with the problem. They could have ignored the problem. However, that hardly ever works. A group of college boys decided to ki kidnap the team mascot, which happened to be a goat, and keep it in their dorm room. They had very intricate plans about how to smuggle the animal into their room until someone finally stopped and said, but what about the smell? And one of the boys replied, the goat will just have to get used to it. 
They could have resented the problem. They could have taken the criticism personally and reacted with resentment. I like the story that's told about the famous painter Whistler. He had just finished a portrait when the subject protested, you can't call that a great work of art. Whistler responded by saying, perhaps not, but then you can't call yourself a great work of nature. They could have overreacted to the problem. Sometimes the temptation is to overreact by yielding to criticism even before we check out its merits and perhaps do more harm than good. A farmer was out plowing his corn one day when he heard a scratching sound. He saw a mouse gnawing at a stalk of corn and he thought of all the long hours he had spent clearing the land and planting the land and cultivating the land and now this mouse was trying to destroy it. In the heat of anger, the farmer picked up a stick and went after the mouse. He beat and he slashed and he chased and he sweated until he finally delivered a lethal blow to the mouse. He felt a great sense of accomplishment until he looked around and realized that he had destroyed nearly an acre of corn in order to kill a little mouse. If not well thought out, sometimes the solution can be more deadly than the problem. What did they do? Well, what they did was face the problem. And every problem that arises in the church gives us the opportunity to do one of three things. To examine the effectiveness of our ministry, to exercise faith in the Lord and each other, and to express love in the way that we work out the problem. The third thing is that handling problems may require delegation. Verses 4 and 5. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And then he goes on to tell about those that they chose. If you look at these names, you'll note that each one of these seven individuals has a Greek name. Greek men to minister to a Greek problem. It says, in whom they set before the apostles... And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Based on the current experience, I can envision one of the possibilities of how it happened. The, the Grecian Jews came to the disciples and said, The Grecian widows are being neglected. Someone needs to do something. Let me tell you from personal experience. <clears throat> Sometimes when people say, I think we need to visit the shut-ins more, or I think we need to be more organized, I think we should start a new ministry for the elderly or for parents or for students, what these people are usually saying is, I think you should do something. Sometimes the key to understanding how to solve this problem is to understand that we are usually affected in the areas of our spiritual interest one key to resolving the problem is that people need to understand that God has laid on their hearts something within the area of their spiritual giftedness. God wants them to be a part of the solution. I can tell you that I have seen in this church times when people did that very thing and took the incentive. The apostles 
had already declared, verse 2, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And now they say in verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer in the ministry of the word. At first glance, that may sound a bit harsh, even condescending. It would be easy to read this as though the apostles were saying, we're too good to serve tables. After all, we're the apostles. Let's pick out seven flunkies who can do that. While we devote ourselves to the tremendously important spiritual work of prayer and preaching of the word. But if we read it that way, I think we completely miss out on the meaning of the passage. The apostles are convinced that their primary calling was to proclaim the word of God with its related requirement of prayer. It takes time to prepare a biblical sermon, a lot of time to do it right. It may be hard for you to believe, but for me, it means about 20 hours or more of preparation per sermon. The apostles understood that God had called them to the ministry of the word. Anything that moved them away from that priority, no matter how good or noble or necessary it might be, was actually a diversion from their divine calling. But instead of trying to attach blame to anyone, what they did was delegate responsibility. Verse 3 says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, whom may, we may appoint over this business. There is no hint that the apostles regarded this work as inferior or beneath their dignity. It is entirely a question of calling. When we think of their recommendation, we are reminded of an Old Testament incident. Moses was leading the children of Israel, and he was trying to do it all himself. He was snowed under, and he was literally working himself to death. And his father-in-law came to him and said in Exodus chapter 18 and verse 12, This strain will kill you. I advise you to select some able men to help you. In our text, the apostles laid out specific qualifications. No job is too small to require good people. Verse 3 tells us what those requirements are. These men are to be chosen from within the church. They're to be men of good reputation. That is, they are to be men of, good, of character. Let me assure you that regardless of what you hear in the political arena in our day, character does matter. They were to be men of spiritual standing, filled with the Holy Spirit. They were to be men of intelligence, full of wisdom. And in spite of what seems to be the case in some churches, they were elected to settle a quarrel, not start one. Verse 4, handling problems produces dividends. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. The first result of the handling of the problem was that unity was restored among the people. 
According to verse 5, the proposal made by the apostles was please the whole multitude because the people were once again united in purpose. And because of that, the result was that the gifts of each individual were utilized. As the, as the church grows, it is not a time to get lost in the crowd, but rather to get involved in the ministry. People who study church growth tells us that in order to have a maximally healthy church, 60% of the people must be involved in some sort of ministry. If the widows are being neglected, then it's time to wait tables. If the Sunday school needs more teachers, then it's time to step up. We're not only to be careful not to complain, but we must also be willing to serve. I share with you a, a quote from Fr Fred Cranick, which is one of my favorites. It's a quote about the nature of service. He says, To give my life for Christ appears glorious. To pour myself out for others. To pay the ultimate price of martyrdom. I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. We think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But in reality, for most of us, he sends us to the bank and has us cash in the $1,000 for quarters. We go through life putting 25 cents here and 50 cents there, listening to the neighbor kids' troubles instead of saying, get lost. Going to the committee meeting, giving a cup of water to a shaky old man in the nursing home. Usually, giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. The text says, then. That is, when the sense of unity was restored and the involvement of the ministry of everyone was increased, it says, then the word of God and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. The two words spread and multiplied are both imperfect tense, indicating that both the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church were continuous. When conflict is checked within the church, the work of God goes on with great power and blessing. There is something here that ought to speak to every one of our hearts. Are you praying for revival to occur in our church? Have you ever gone to the Lord in prayer and simply asked this? Lord, <clears throat> please revive our church and let it begin in me. If there is anything within me that hinders revival, please reveal it and remove it. Let's pray. 
Father, we're thankful that you continue to use us as imperfect as we are. Father, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning as we gather here. There may be someone here that is just hurting this morning because the holidays have been hard. It's made them aware of their loneliness or of their loss. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd just wrap your arms around them this morning and they would uh, feel a special sense of your presence right now, right here. There are others here who may not have ever really made a decision for you, ever made a commitment for you. I pray that you might speak to their heart, help them to realize that they're sinners and they need to be saved, just like all the rest of us. And that Jesus has done everything necessary. All they must do is claim what he's done on the cross. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we might be willing to pray that prayer. Lord, we want revival in our church. We want your church to grow. We want revival so badly, Lord. I pray that you'd begin it in me. Forgive me in the times when I have failed you. And Lord, if there is something in me that needs to be removed, then Lord, help me to see it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.